the first truth, the truth of suffering is that in life pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. The second truth is that the cause of suffering is craving, which leads us to the third truth, that the complete cessation of craving will bring about the complete cessation of suffering. But since craving is rooted in delusion, the only way we can come to that complete end of craving, and therefore suffering, is uh, to overcome the delusion in which we're trapped. And then the fourth truth is the Noble Eightfold Path. It is the path that leads to uh, the end of delusion, and therefore the end of craving and freedom from suffering. Uh, this is the Eightfold Path. It has eight parts. These eight are intertwined, so I don't think of them as, as steps. They're not steps. They're more like eight, eight threads twined together in a single uh, uh, cable, for example. You perceive along all eight of these folds of the path at the same time. But there is a certain, nevertheless, there is a certain order in them. But again, with right understanding, also known as right view, and as I'll just say in a moment, I think we could look at right understanding as the beginning, and then we're going to come back to these, to this last one at the end. Uh, right understanding, right intention, these are the wisdom group. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood, these are the group um, called virtue. And right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, these are the group called meditation. And then the end of the process is the same right understanding we start with, but knowing it in the deepest possible way, knowing it uh, intuitively as a truth we just lose sound? Yeah. Knowing it uh, intuitively rather than intellectually. So we've been working through this and we've been talking about uh, right understanding uh, and right understanding. There's a lot of circularity in the way this Buddha Dhamma is set up. Uh, right understanding means properly understanding the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, and causality and karma. Ultimately, just about everything that might be described as the Dharma fits into those, so they can be expand, expanded extensively. But uh, we have, over the preceding weeks, uh, covered the Four Noble Truths in considerable depth. We are now looking at the Three Characteristics. And the Three Characteristics <laughs> refer to impermanence, no-self, uh, impermanence and no-self uh, together actually are uh, what is commonly referred to as emptiness in the Mahayana tradition. And then the other characteristic is suffering. These are describing the characteristics of the world we live in and of, of human life. That uh, the characteristics are impermanence, no self-nature in anything. And the third of these characteristics is really derived from the first two. Suffering is a result of not understanding the way things really are. That's, as we already said, that's where the delusion comes in. It's the delusion that about reality that causes the suffering. 
Now we have talked about the three characteristics. Everything changes. That's one meaning of impermanence. All that arises due to causes and conditions must pass away. There is only process. This is the deeper meaning. That it's not just that there are things that arise and pass away. In fact, there are no things. There is only process. That thingness is an illusion that our minds project on to certain parts of the process that happen in slow enough motion, at least compared to the way our minds work, that we see them as being stable, even self-existent objects. But the truth that underlies that appearance is that there really is nothing but chain. And there's only one process. There aren't multiple processes going on side by side, your process, my process, uh, all these other different processes. There really is only one process. It's our mind that divides it up and gives it this appearance of being multiple, separate, independent things, each with their own nature. So that's what impermanence means. We're now looking at uh, we're now looking at no self. And in order to look for no self, that involves there is this sense that we cling to quite strongly. Uh, we would like to believe we have a soul. We'd really like it if we could believe that that soul was uh, permanent and eternal. But even if we have doubts about that, we certainly have total conviction that, at least for the time being, I've got a self, and that self is is very real and uh, very. It's a very important part of our worldview that we are a separate self. And so, in order to examine this characteristic of no self, we have to look at ourselves and see if we can find this self or soul, or anything within that. As a tool for this exploration, the Buddha described the individual in terms of five aggregates, five heaps, five collections, and that's what we have in front of us right now. One heap is all the physical parts of ourself, the body. Body as a whole, body as a collection of parts, so forth. The second aggregate or heap are feelings. And this is not feelings as in tactile feelings. It's not feelings as in emotions. It's feelings as in affective qualities of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Okay? Um, so we consist of a body, we consist of feelings of these three kinds arising and passing away constantly. We consist of perceptions. All of the different things that we perceive, the way the, that we perceive things to be, the reality that we perceive that we live in, the person that we perceive that we are, all of these perceptions. The fourth aggregate 
are all other mental formations. Now, the reason that's an aggregate of other mental formations is because feelings are a mental formation. Pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutral feeling, these are constructions of your own mind. Okay? So they are mental formations. They've been singled out by the Buddha in, in making this description because of the important role they play in our subjective experience of who and what we are. Likewise, perceptions are mental formations. Visual information comes into your mind through your eyes, and then it is your mind that organizes that color and shape and so forth into a meaningful perception and puts a label on it. Because that's a person, that's a car, that's a rock, that's a tree. And attaches values to it. That's a pretty rock, that's an ugly tree, and that's my car. Right? Um, so perceptions are mental formations as well. And then, But the fourth category here is all of the other mental formations in addition to feelings and perceptions. All of your emotions, for example. All of your thoughts and ideas, theories, so forth. And then the last aggregate is the aggregate of consciousness. Now what the Buddha wanted people to do with this is to take these five and to investigate them and see if anywhere in there they could find the self that they think they are or any kind of soul that could pass on from one life to another that had some sort of abiding existence of its own. So that's, so that's what the five aggregates are, are a tool for that exploration. I've rearranged them here so that you can see. I put what... Uh, well, let me explain just a little bit this one here, sensations. Uh, the first aggregate is called rupa in Pali, which means form. But form came to refer to anything that could be sensed with the five physical senses. came to be called form. So all sensible object. So by extension, then, rupa is anything that is physical and material. It's the entire world of materiality and physics. Then there's an interesting kind of turnaround in that. Because this is, you're examining your own subjective reality. And if you reflect on it, you have no way of knowing that any material object exists except through the sensations that it produces and that you, that, that you experience in your mind. You see what this suggests here is that uh, what, what seems like this material, physical world out there is 
merely an inference of our mind. What it's based on, the reality, the concrete reality that it's based on, are all of the sensations that we experience coming through uh, our bodily senses, our eyes, our ears, our nose, and our tongue. That clear? Make sense to everyone? So in order for this to be really meaningful, we recognize that. And instead of calling this this aggregate at the bottom there the, the material aggregate of the body, because you don't even know that you have a body. All you know is you have a lot of sensations that your mind organizes. So, well, I must have a body, I must have arms and legs, because I see things out there moving, I feel things, and so forth. So there is that aggregate of sensations. That corresponds to material. Both consciousness and the other three are mental in nature. And the name for that in Pali is Nama, which means name. And Nama came to refer not just naming, which is one kind of mental activity, but it came to refer to all kinds of mental activity. And so this... The other four aggregates all belong in the category of mind, nama, mental things, mentality, mental activities, mental objects, and so forth. So what the Buddha asks us to do with the five aggregates is look into each one of those. Look into sensations and see, do you find any self in the sensations you experience? Look at your feelings. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, arising due to all kinds of different causes, sometimes arising in association with sensations, sometimes arising in association with mental formations like thoughts and ideas. Some emotions are pleasant, some emotions are unpleasant. You examine your feelings. Do you find any self in that? Or do you just find a bunch of different feelings that come and go? Examine your perceptions your visual perceptions, your auditory perceptions, your tactile perceptions, tastes and smells. Any of the different things that you perceive as a result of your mind processing sensation, is there any self in that? Then look at all the rest of the mental formations, your emotional states that come and go your thoughts and ideas that come into your mind from other people, that your mind forms itself out of certain experiences, that your mind rearranges in all kinds of different ways. Is there any self that you can point a finger at, attach to, put a box around in all of those kinds of mental formations? And then finally, Consciousness, which is what we're really going to be talking the most about, we do have some time left. Uh, that's really what this is a lead up to, is to talk about consciousness um, and uh, the different kinds of consciousness. So the task though that the, that the Buddha set for us in order to understand the truth of no self was to investigate these five thoroughly enough to first of all satisfy yourself that something hadn't been left out. There isn't some part 
of our subjective experience of who we are as an individual that's not included in there. And then to thoroughly investigate all of those and see if we can find that self that we think we are anywhere in there. And we can talk more about this another time. Um, but what you end up discovering, the insight that you have if you investigate this thoroughly, is that these five aggregates, these collections, these heaps, describe the individual. You as an individual are real, and you as an individual exist, but you are nothing but these constantly changing things that can fall into your collection. Your collection and what your collection of is constantly changing. Your perceptions change moment to moment, feelings change moment to moment. Other mental constructions change moment to moment. The sensations you experience are constantly changing. And as we see, consciousness is constantly changing as well. So, the self that we look for, we think that there should be one of, one of those. Right? Myself, yourself, that's what we've always assumed. That's what our mind has, has, that's the underlying premise our mind has operated on for our entire life is, is one of me, myself. And now all of a sudden we, well, no, there's not one, there's many. We like to think that self is unchanging, but all it is is a flux with these different things. Most of all, we'd like to think at least that it's separate. That this collection of five changing heaps, at least it stays separate, and there's a boundary around it that separates me from everything else. But the other thing, when we look into this carefully, is we discover that's not true either. That Things are coming in from not-self to become part of self, and things that are part of self are constantly leaving. And so there is not that separateness. As a matter of fact, if we go back to impermanence, those characteristics of reality, they're not just describing the world as we see it, they're also describing our own nature. Everything about us changes. Changes due to causes and conditions. Whatever pertains in one moment is going to be very limited. As soon as the causes and conditions change, that characteristic will pass away. We are only process. You, your individuality is just process. Ultimately, there is no thing that you could call yourself. That thingness is an illusion that your mind projects. Ultimately, there is only one process, and you are totally into you, the you that you would like to think of as separate. It's not separate. It is totally interdependent and totally <clears throat> connected with everything else. So that's what the five aggregates is teaching us. Now, the part that most people have problems with is the consciousness part. They would like to get in a place, okay, well, it might not be this, and it might not be that, but my consciousness, surely, surely I am my consciousness. Surely that's who and what I really am. 
So, because a couple of weeks ago and a couple of weeks before that, people asked about can we talk about consciousness, what it really is? Can we talk about the mind, and what it really is? This is the time to do that. This is a, this is the time to get into it and see what we can learn about consciousness. Now, keep it in the back of your mind as we're doing this, because we're going to come back to this in the end. After we've understood what the mind is and what consciousness is, the original question that Buddha wanted us to answer, is that our self? Is there a self in consciousness? Okay, so just keep that in the back of your mind. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of consciousness and the mind. Okay, any questions at this point? Gone way too fast for anybody? Done a lot of reviewing here of what we've talked about in the past. Yeah. When everything is a process and everything is changing, why can't we use the word self then also as a process and as ever changing? So well, the self is still there as a, as a yeah. metaphor for who we are in the process of constant change. Well, we, we can use it metaphorically and as a convenient way of thinking. What we're trying to get past, though, is that internal conviction we have that the self we're referring to really is separate. Is a wave separate from the ocean? It's not. Is a whirlpool and a stream separate from the stream? It's not. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, if you look at the surface of a stream with a microscope, you'll see there's jillions of little whirlpools that you don't normally see. So, so whereas we, we can, from the relative state that human beings normally experience reality, I'm an individual and you're an individual. But when we have that inner conviction that, that, that indeed there is a separateness that goes beyond mere appearance, that's where our problems begin. So it, that, that's in, in the sense. Okay. It's to believe that the self is real rather than a, a kind of perception uh, that is projected on to reality. And that, that is a big jump. And as a matter of fact, to go from the place of feeling like I am separate, no matter how much a person intellectually understands that, well, indeed, this is, this is an illusion, they still continue to feel that they are separate. It takes a very, very deep insight to shift that in such a way that you subjectively, and as you, the individual, continues to navigate through the world, you subjectively know that you are not separate from anything or anyone else. That's a big shift. But that's what we're working towards. Any other questions? All right, let's look at consciousness then. Now, the Buddha broke consciousness down in this way, and Buddhists have ever since, that if you examine conscious experience, what you find is consciousness of visual objects, I'll add high consciousness, 
consciousness of audible objects, we call that ear consciousness, consciousness of objects that are known through any of the various bodily senses. That, of course, includes things that you touch, but it also includes you close your eyes and you feel where your arm is and the position and shape of it. That's still bodily consciousness. Uh, there are smellable objects that you you experience, and that's nose consciousness, and there's tasteable objects that you uh, know through tongue consciousness. But when you examine your experience, your conscious experience, it is a series, each moment different consciousness is arising and passing away. You see, and you hear, and you feel, and you taste, and you smell, and so forth. And then intermixed amongst all of those are uh, what's called mind consciousness, mental objects. Uh, while you're hearing and seeing, you're also experiencing emotions, and feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, and ideas, and thoughts, and memories. So let's just stick with those six for the moment. So the Buddha said, if you examine your consciousness, what you'll find is that there are six kinds of consciousness. Each one is defined in terms of being a consciousness of a particular kind of object. And although theoretically, abstractly, we can separate consciousness from that which you are conscious of. Consciousness can be separated from the object. In terms of your experience, is it error? That, that does take some reflection to be able to make a confident answer. But uh, what do you think? With that? No, doesn't seem like it was. It doesn't seem like it. So, so, this aspect of what it means to be one of us, the consciousness aspect, is always dependent upon objects and sense organs and there being a particular object of consciousness, whether it's a something you see or whether it's something arising from your mind, some thought or memory. So that's if you're in form. But what if you're in a formless realm? Well, uh, no. Is that mind consciousness? Formless realm is mind consciousness. Yeah. Form, uh, the formless realm is fairly abstract thing, like time, space, <coughs> and so forth. Um, the, uh, well, no, the formless realm isn't those things. Those things are also part of form. So the formless realm is where uh, the objects of consciousness are just very refined. They're very, very refined objects of consciousness. Um, that's a whole different discussion that we'll have to have on, on another occasion. But in your experience, now the other thing, now this is another thing that's not necessarily immediately obvious, but does become obvious through meditation, 
it seems as though that you can hear and see and smell at the same time. But one of the things that you discover in meditation is that the, these different kinds of consciousness events are happening extremely quickly, one right after another. And that's why they seem to be happening at the same time. But indeed, you have what's called a moment of visual consciousness. Actually, you have many moments of visual consciousness. You may have many moments of auditory consciousness that are interspersed amongst those, so that you have the experience of looking at me and hearing my voice at the same time. But each of those is distinct in itself. Do you mean by that that they happen in terms of time at different time moments? They happen in different in different time moments, very brief moments. So, moments of consciousness, many, many, many of them, happening very, very closely together, so that you have the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling. Uh, more or less at the same time. But they are discrete and separate events. Uh, this is something that you can demonstrate for yourself, but until you get to that point, you have to kind of take the word for other people that have gotten to the point of seeing that. Yes, you had a question? Uh, yeah. Um, somehow, I uh, had perception or conception of um, consciousness, it's like separate entity. Is what? Separate entity, uh, kind yeah. of in our body. And if we uh, have perception through vision or hearing or anything like that, that's only because it is our physical perception and or chemical reactions in our body or whatever depends on uh, what we have. But somehow, I don't know, um, to me, I always had the perception that, uh, or concepts about consciousness, that it's something separate from physical mm -hmm. uh, senses we have. And uh, we actually uh, have a consciousness at some point yeah. And entering uh, in our body, I don't know, is a moment of conception or I don't know. Uh, so I don't know. Yes, First this is exactly what we're trying to get at. Yes, most of us carry around to a greater or lesser degree that same perception that consciousness is somehow this different stuff. And that's what we're being asked to do is to examine and see if we're finding consciousness. That's not consciousness of something. You're challenging that. You're saying, okay, we have... Because, in abstractly and theoretically, we can say, well, if you're conscious of a visual object, then there must be something different from the visual object that we call consciousness, and they must be separate. And, and that's quite reasonable. But what we're being asked to do is to look at your actual experience. 
and see if there is some separate substance called consciousness. Because this is how people want to take consciousness and make consciousness into a soul. That when, at the moment of conception, whether you call it a soul or whether you call it consciousness, this other stuff gets injected. And so that's that's what we're looking at. Is we're question, okay, well, let's look and see if we can find that other stuff. Or do we only find or do we only find consciousness of something? Uh, may I say something? Yeah. Um, it's it because we can measure our physical consciousness through equipment or we're progressing all these uh, things and science and so forth. But a consciousness, it's not physical stuff, so it's very hard to measure. So how we can find or even pinpoint? Well, what we're trying to do is not measure anything with physical instruments. We're trying to see what we can discover through introspection, through self-examination. So if we see if we can make sense of it. So if you if you will, I'll just ask you at this point, if you want to we we can talk about these other points, but let's get this this picture of consciousness and mind together, if if we can first. So we'll call this the moments of consciousness theory. This is what's presented in the what's called the Abhidharma. And this is the result of many people's meditation experience. And right up today, people have meditation experience that confirms this. They say, yes, my, my experience, my subjective experience, my being, consists of a series of moments. And in each of those moments, I am conscious of something. I'm conscious of a thought, an idea, a memory, a feeling, a emotion, a visual object, a tactile object, and so forth. But that's what, what your life consists of is a series of individual moments of conscious experience in which you are conscious of something. That's the moments of consciousness model. And in terms of what kinds of moments of consciousness We've listed six here. Later on, uh, a little bit later in history, a group of meditators called the Yogacharans. They were a, a group that their belief was that anything that was said as a matter of doctrine had to be verified through personal experience in meditation. If you couldn't find it and see it for yourself, then it had to be questioned. And one of the things that they realized is that this description of consciousness as being of six types was missing a piece. That in addition to all these different kinds of consciousness, there was something that tied them together and created a story in which there was an I, in which there were objects. It took visual impressions and created visual objects from those. Because in each moment of visual consciousness, there's a very limited, discrete amount of information available. Just pay a moment to your own visual experience and the movements of your eyes. Each moment only takes up 
but somehow that gets knitted together so that you have the visual experience of a room full of people. Yeah, if you could slow it down and capture it, it's like each little picture only contains a tiny amount of information. Not only that, how do the things that that you are visually aware of get to be combined with the things that you are auditorily aware of? So things need to be combined over time, and then things of different natures need to be combined together. So there is another kind of moment of consciousness that we have, and uh, I've chosen to call it the binding moment of consciousness, because this corresponds to what uh, has been found in neuroscience, that yes, indeed, the neuroscientists asked the same question that these meditators did, Thousand, more than a thousand years ago, they asked, okay, how does all this different information coming in at different times and being processed by completely different parts of the brain, how does it ever get combined in a meaningful way? And they found a phenomenon called binding, and it's even associated now through research with a particular uh, kind of electrical activity in the brain. But many years ago, the Yogacharans recognized that there was something that bound all this information together. And not only that, when it bound the information together, it didn't just make a catalog of it. It made a coherent story out of it. So it put sound, visual, and tactile information together and attributed it to a particular object and it. And... As it told the story, there was always a hero to the story, the central figure, the I. I saw, I felt, I thought, I decided, I did. And so there are these moments of consciousness that their content are these little episodes that tie our experience together uh, in terms of eyes and its connected by some form of action that takes place in the moment. Isn't that all very interesting? Yeah. <laughs> so, what this is saying is something happens, you, you see something. In the seeing, there is only the seeing, there's just an image that appears in consciousness. But then, following that is maybe a feeling, a good, pleasant or unpleasant in response to that. But in that feeling, there's just the feeling. That might be followed by the mind generating a concept, a label. What you saw was a bird or whatever. But in that conceptualization, in that recognition, there's just a recognizing. There's just a putting forward of a mental uh, concept, a label to whatever it is you saw or heard, and so forth. And the seeing is only the seeing, even in, in the thought, there's only the thought. And the idea is only the idea. But then there's another part of the mind that makes a story out of it. I saw, I felt, I wanted, I did, and so forth. 
And that's, that's how we experience our reality, is it not? So with these seven kinds of moments of consciousness, it does account for what you experience moment by moment in the course of your life. Yeah. How does this uh, dovetail into uh, a sense of, or the process of evolution and survival? As oh, this, well, you, I think you can, if you think about it, this, you can see why these evolved as organisms became more complex and more sophisticated. Very simple organisms certainly wouldn't have this kind of... A snail wouldn't. Yeah, this kind of binding consciousness, and I doubt a snail has any sort of I-it structure to describe its experience. It's just things come up, and then there's an automatic reaction. So do, do you think that our consciousness or our sense of our quote-unquote self is different than it was, say, in the 16th century? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, because... That's a, it, it, it wouldn't be if we all grew up in separate little boxes, but we are formed as much by our culture as by anything else. And so as culture evolves, then each individual reflects the entire evolution of their culture up to the, up to the point that they began to imbibe that culture and incorporate it so into culture itself. culture is a bigger consciousness? Or a... Yes, you're getting ahead of the story a little bit, oh. but absolutely, culture <laughs> is a bigger consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Every group is. This, this group in this room is a bigger consciousness than each of us individually. And we can intellectually recognize that, but we can't subjectively experience it because it's at a different level, right? So we can know that within this room there, there is a group consciousness intellectually. Is this what Jung was talking about? Well, Jung was talking about the collective unconscious, and that's likewise. That's something that is also present. And we'll see, as we continue this, you'll see exactly how that comes about as well. But... We're kind of stuck. We can only experience consciousness at the level that we're at. But that, but why that is will become clear too. Yeah. I'm thinking about the relationship to mindful practice. Is it so when we put mindful practice uh, to all these different kinds of consciousness, mindful walking, mindful meditation, mindful eating, whatever, we, we raise consciousness? Is that a direct... Correlation. What you do is you make your consciousness much more powerful. You have a more powerful conscious awareness. Um, you use more parts of your mind, and they interact much more, uh, much more fully than they do in an untrained mind. So you might you may be powerful in, in, in ways of being aware of it. Yeah. Or... yeah. So <laughs> what I'd like you to do is. Don't try to jump ahead and guess what consciousness really is. <laughs> Just stay with, stay with it a step at a time. That your subjective reality, as far back as you can remember and as far as you could project into the future, is, has been, and will be a series of moments of consciousness of something coming right after another. And there are these binding moments of consciousness 
that weave them into the story. So that if you wonder where does this idea of self come from, it's gonna it's comes from a misinterpretation of the eye of the story. See the part of the mind that creates these binding moments of consciousness, in order to tell a story that makes sense, has to have a common reference to link all of these things together. And that is ultimately the source of this idea that we have that we are a separate self. The other source of it is we have a deep down primitive instinctive sense of separateness. And in terms of evolution, that was necessary to make sure that we took care of this individual organism that we are. So in order to in order to survive and reproduce. As it turns out, all Mother Nature is interested in is the wheel of birth and death. You know, you're born, you eat, you grow, you make babies, and then you're not important anymore. <laughs> but your babies have to eat, grow, and survive, so they can make more babies then. So. while back you uh, talked about consciousness and kind of rocked my world when you said that the quality of consciousness was the same for all things that have consciousness. That there was, there was something you had said where all things that have consciousness have identical... Yeah. What I, I think I was saying, and this is what, once we know what consciousness is, you'll understand what this means. Consciousness is a phenomenon that permeates the universe from the smallest subatomic particles to the universe as a whole. It's the same identical stuff at every level. But your consciousness consists of the particular consciousnesses of that happen in your mind. And consciousness at different levels takes many many different forms, but it's always the same stuff. Yeah. So once we know what consciousness is, that'll be obvious. Cool. Okay, well, um, gone over time a little bit. I want to, I'm not going to introduce any new information, but does any further questions or comments anybody would like to make? Yeah? This may just be semantic. But in playing with this idea of there's <clears throat> no consciousness separate from the consciousness of the arising of whatever phenomena it is, you said a few minutes ago, when something arises within consciousness. So I'm trying to like... Okay, what we're doing is we're using consciousness in two different ways. And actually, what I would like to do, but I, I, I can't do it, is to speak of consciousness and the conscious mind. So you really should, strictly speaking, talk about things arising in the conscious mind. Because the conscious mind is the place where it arises. But as it turns out, you see, I tried to do that in my writing. And uh, everybody that edits my writing always wants to make consciousness and conscious mind the same thing and interchangeable because it reads better. 
sounds better. You know, use consciousness in this sentence, and then you use conscious mind in the next sentence, referring to exactly the same thing. And also in ordinary speech, you know, so. But we do this all the time in language. We use a word, and in one context it means one thing, and in another context it means another. But as we go along, it will it will become clear that the difference of that, and you won't be troubled by sometimes saying things arise in consciousness. Because if you say something arises in consciousness, it's something like, yeah, there's, there's this thing that it arises in. I, I'll give you, I've used a terminology that I've used before that helps to show you where we're going. But like I say, don't try to get ahead of this. Okay. Consciousness is shared receptivity. It's connectedness. Okay? And can you have connectedness without that which is connected? You can't. That's right. Yeah. So. Anyway, so this was a good start, I think. Certainly should have, I, I hope, got some things going in your mind. <laughs> I presented you some very uh, classical Buddhist doctrine here, but hopefully in a way that gets you thinking about it in a totally different way than you might have previously. So we'll see you in... We'll continue this in two weeks. The, the Insight Retreat next weekend, uh, we're not going to assume any of this discussion in the retreat, but as we're talking about that, you're going to see how what we talk about there all, uh, all eventually ties into this.